Hello and welcome to a special version of Kelly's Take on History. Um, hi, for those of you who don't really listen or this is the first time for you. My name is Dr. Stuart Tully. I'm a professor at Nichols State University in Thibodeau, Louisiana. I have a PhD in history. I'm a, I'm a doctor of history. Uh, my specialty is cultural history, and although I didn't really try to get into this, uh, as like a real specialty, um, I, I was hoping to be like a general pop culture historian. Apparently rap music has been like something that always seems to come back in my research and my uh, publishing. So uh, I, I hesitate to call myself like a hip hop historian, but it seems to come up quite a bit. And what I'm doing today is I'm doing a um, extended version of a paper that I presented this past weekend at the Gulf South um, Historical Society, the Gulf South Historical Association. Uh, they have an annual meeting this year. It was in Natchez, Mississippi, and I presented this paper. Um, I only had a 20-minute limit there, but now this is my podcast. I can go a lot longer, so ha-ha, suckers. Y'all are getting the longer version of this. Uh, and if you go on, uh, wherever I posted this, I, I made sure that I also posted a um, the link to the uh, PowerPoint, or should I say Google Slides, that goes along with this. So a couple of pictures. You don't really need it. I don't think any of the pictures are that necessary, um, I'm not including musical clips in this uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, there's a there's a small chance that uh, I might have to pay for them or like you know give give credit to that. Even though I, I think it'd be fair use considering that I'm doing this for academic purposes and I don't charge for this particular podcast. I, I make no money off of this. I have no advertising. Maybe one day, but uh, oftentimes this is where uh, this podcast. Um, is used for my students and how I deliver lectures, so I don't I don't monetize it. But also, it's kind of complicated to put the music on there. So uh, I'm going to be naming songs you, you probably have heard of once or twice, but uh, very easy to look up. Likewise, if I mention a YouTube video, a particular one, I'll make sure I include enough identifying information for you to figure it out uh, how to find it. But I don't think that's going to be too too important. So with that said, let's get going. Uh, why don't you go download that PowerPoint? Uh, it says, We true soldiers and we don't die. Masculinity, memory, and military imagery in No Limit Records. Now, I bet you might be wondering, Hey, Telly, how'd you come about this topic? Well, um, it actually came because of the conference. Um, the Gulf South Conference is a conference I tend to go to quite a bit. I'm a member of the organization. And each year they have themes. Uh, I've, Like I said, I've gone, delivered tons of papers there, not just on hip-hop, but on other things. And I've also chaired a bunch of panels. Uh, chairing a panel is where you're a bit more of a senior member and you, you know, read other people's papers and, you know, offer them comments on there. I've done that a couple times myself. Uh, actually about equal to the ones I presented. And so whenever I, I heard the theme of this year's conference, uh, each year's conference has a general theme. Uh, you can or can't, you know, go along with the topic, but it's generally a good idea to go along with it. Uh, the theme was warfare and the, the, the imagery of warfare within the, within the Gulf South. And when I first heard that, my initial response was, well, okay, it looks like I'm going to be chairing a panel this year because I can't think of anything I can present. However, once I started to think about it a little bit, I was like, you know, honestly, my mind originally went to No Limit. My, my mind originally went to No Limit and also Mystical, who feature very heavily in this. And also the fact that there are a weirdly high number of early rappers who are in the military, but don't really talk about it in their rhymes. We're going to talk about that for just a second. Because hip-hop and the U.S. military have had an understated but lengthy history of interplay between the two. From the earliest days of hip-hop as a genre, armed forces imagery has played a role. Likewise, a small but not insignificant number of early rappers had military service, but they typically did not speak of it in their rhymes. 
However, the infrastructure of the military, specifically military bases and their surrounding area, often served as incubators for developing rap talent and a strong audience base for aspiring MCs. Rap's hesitancy to utilize extensive military imagery changed in the mid-90s with Percy Master P. Miller's No Limit Records, who extensively used military imagery in its version of gangster rap. For Miller, and by the way, generally uh, when I talk about rappers, I refer to them by their given last names. Uh, whenever I'm talking their business dealings, however, if I'm talking about a performance or their stage persona, I will use their stage names. But for instance, um, with Percy Miller, a.k.a. Master P., uh, you know, he's a businessman. Whenever he's making these business decisions about how he's going to frame himself, how he's going to present himself, I generally take that as uh, his given last name of, of Miller as opposed to the caricature, the stage presence, the stage persona of Master P. So, for instance, you know, in their rhymes, I generally refer to them as stage names, but in their business decisions, I generally refer to them as their last names. It's a stylistic choice that I, I do, but I think it really gives um, credence to the, uh, the forethought that they put into some of this. So for Miller, his, his depiction of a no-limit soldier was a gangsta, a masculine, and aggressive figure that fit within a militaristic milieu. To be a soldier was to be proof of their bona fides as quote-unquote bad men who were not to be trifled with. Uh, Miller extensively used tanks, camouflage, and references to soldiers and other military imagery in his lyrics to build a multi-million dollar rap empire that spread throughout many forms of media. If you weren't around in the mid to late 90s, uh, Masterpiece, uh, Percy Miller, whatever, uh, the No Limit Soldiers were everywhere. They were probably the biggest rap act for quite a while. I mean, yes, they were based in Louisiana, and I'm based in Louisiana. I'm based in Louisiana. I was like 13, okay? I was a kid. I was a child in Louisiana. Uh, and so what's interesting is that Miller had actually been in the rap business for a couple of years before implementing the soldier imagery. But it was through this incarnation that the uh, No Limit Records, through this version of No Limit Records, that the New Orleans-based Impensario made his mark on pop culture. We'll get into that later, but the fact that he switches to New Orleans after being in Riverside uh, for Richmond, sorry, Richmond, California for a while, Bay Area for a while is a big part of that. Uh, this um, Miller presents soldiers as emblematic of No Limit's power and toughness, although he himself never actually served in the armed forces. This dynamic was actually particularly evident in the rapper Michael Mystical Tyler, uh, who was signed to No Limit for a while, uh, who was actually a veteran of the First Gulf War and actually occasionally alluded to his service in his lyrics. Now, although Miller um, toned down the militaristic and gangster imagery in the early 2000s when he tried to appeal to a more mainstream audience, he does maintain a pro-American sense of patriotism and even jingoism, mainly after the, the events of September 11th, which is indicative of a larger trend within rap music. It's a short period, um, pretty much after the 9-11 attacks, but before the Iraq evasion turns into a quagmire, the second Gulf War turns into a real quagmire, where rap music is very patriotic for quite a while. And although the, the relationship between the American military and rappers is an indicative of a trend within African-American population in the United States, acutely for African-Americans living in the Gulf South. For many African-Americans in the 1980s and 90s, military service was chosen not out of a sense of duty or patriotism, but as a viable option for economic stability when faced with limited options. It is also remarkable because although soldier and military imagery are prominent, depictions of war and fighting an enemy are not particularly evident, representative of the post-Cold War, pre-September 11th period and its mindset. Uh, this relationship is underserved, there's not been too much research about it, and deserving of uh, further study. 
Now, ordinarily, this is the part of the paper, after I've kind of introduced it, where I go into the historiography. Historiography, if you're not a historian, is the history of history. And this is where I talk about who's talked about this before, what sort of trends they go to, what's the underlying philosophy of what we talk about it. Now, I'm not going to go too deep into it because... I'm guessing most of you listening to this are not historians and don't really care about historiography, but I'm going to talk a little bit about it. Uh, So basically, um, is there rap history? Yes, there is. There's lots of it. Um, I'm not going to get into the particulars about it, but just know there's quite a bit of it. Uh, Has Master P been written about? Yeah, he sure has. A lot of people have written about Master P. A lot of people have written about his soldier stuff. Um, Well, just the idea of the No Limit Soldiers and some of the imagery of it, particularly in terms of masculinity. Uh, there's a lot of masculinity studies. I'm thinking of a book by Boyd, Young, Black, Rich, and Famous, uh, basically talking about um, the, the masculinity element of young black men sh- demonstrated in rap music, uh, kind of this, uh, you know, hyper-masculine, hyper-cisgendered, uh, you know, it's more of gender studies and history, but still it's quite interesting stuff. Uh, how this is a little bit different, oh yeah, uh, Mystical. Uh, not too much has been written about Mystical. There has been a few things about Mystical. There's a book called Bounce, which does the uh, New Orleans history of rap music, basically arguing that New Orleans is a little bit of an outlier in the rap world, and that Bounce music, which is theoretically part of New Orleans music, is, uh, is different and, and has more in line with DC Go-Go music which I don't know if I necessarily agree with. Mystical is a appearance of that. However, none of the studies really talk too much about uh, Mystical's actual military experience, which is what I want to get into, and also just the imagery of the soldier uh, linking it to actual warfare, which is another thing I kind of want to get into. And, and, and likewise, um, th- there is tons of, tons of masculinity stuff when it talks about rap music. Uh, in general, not too much about the prevalence of the military. Not too much about the presence of the military, but that's what we're going to talk about. Uh, so, uh, going on, you can go over one slide. Uh, military service for black men in the 1970s and 80s. Uh, now, before, although hip-hop was uh, conceived in the Bronx in the mid-1970s, the genre spread throughout the country before it was ever commercially recorded. Uh, this is a fairly prominent idea, fairly evident uh, the first recorded rap music song with widespread distribution was Rapper's Delight in 1979. The first hip-hop party, if, if you can consider the first hip-hop party having a date, was in 1973 with Cool DJ Herc. Um, sorry, DJ Cool Herc. Uh, but yes, uh, before it was ever recorded, hip-hop did have some national distribution, uh, kind of underground. Um, not nearly as big as it was once it got, you know, you know, recorded, but still, it did go along. And one manner by it spread by a pretty evident May is through army bases. In fact, a lot of regions of the country were first introduced to hip-hop through service members from the New York City area who brought their bootlegs of rap shows and purchased DJ equipment with their paychecks. Uh, really evident on the West Coast. Really evident on the West Coast where there are a lot of military bases, home to a lot of aspiring rappers or people from New York City, and they introduce it to the surrounding area. Uh, Likewise, soldiers also provided a reliable paying audience for rappers who wanted to put on shows in barracks or surrounding nightclubs. Uh, Now, I do need to mention about the military. Uh, During the Vietnam War, you might remember the famous thing of uh, Muhammad Ali saying, you know, being a draft dodger, um, refusing to join the military, uh, you know, no Viet Cong ever called me the N-word, that sort of thing. Also, there's this kind of resentment of the military in the war in Vietnam for the draft and how poor Americans, particularly African Americans, were not allowed or did not have the option of getting around the draft as easily and getting deferments as white Americans. 
But by the time we get to the you know, mid-70s, a lot of that is softened. Uh, part of that is the fact that they got rid of the draft. They got rid of the draft. Uh, the, the military is now all volunteer. Uh, basically, you have to choose to enlist in the military. And, and fairly, and because of some recruiting, because of some various methods, um, military service for African-American men became viewed as a um, not exactly a patriotic duty, uh, but something one did because it seems a very stable job. It's seen as stable uh, if you have limited opportunity, limited means. It's seen as something that is stable, something that could you know provide. Maybe not lavishly, but you know you could possibly do something with it. Uh, for many, that's kind of the case for many of these uh, rappers. You know, they enlist. It's not out of a sense of patriotism, but rather the military seemed like a viable path to gain stability for themselves and oftentimes their dependents. In fact, the desire to provide for their children, it's a recurring rationale for enlisting the armed forces for a lot of these rappers. Uh, this is really the case, if you've ever one slide, with one Tracy Morrow, better known as Ice-T. Uh, later known as Ice-T, at this time he's not Ice-T, he's just Tracy. Uh, he enlisted in 1977 to provide for his recently born daughter. He was a single father. Um, the mother, he and the mother were never really together, but he's like, you know, I need to step up and provide for my kid. I have limited opportunity, limited options. And so that's why he decides to enlist in the military, enlist in the army. Uh, he's stationed throughout the East Coast. Remember, there's not a foreign war going on, so he's not deployed overseas. Yes, there are foreign, foreign army bases. He never serves of them. Um, but it's in while he's stationed in Hawaii, actually, whenever he's sent over to Hawaii, where he first hears rap music. Now, he actually first hears Rapper's Delight in 1979. And he's really inspired to start rapping himself. Rapper's Delight is one that does it, but there's other oper- there's other instances uh, before Rapper's Delight with people who later became rappers, um, you know, hearing bootlegs and things like that, really on the West Coast. Uh, the reason I chose Ice-T is because it's he's so indicative of this larger trend. You know, he has a kid, he hears rap music, is inspired to rap. And so he, fairly early on, he purchases uh, DJ equipment. He, he, produ- he buys some stereo equipment, uh, mainly to DJ at nightclubs. He plays his first paying gigs uh, at, uh, at nightclubs near the army bases. Near his army bases in um, Hawaii, that's where he does his first gigs. Um, he actually serves until his honorable discharge in 1977. Another reoccurring trend I found with these rappers who joined the military is that they all got honorable discharges. Uh, one would think by you know some of their lyrics and some of their public personas and their various uh, you know tangles with the law after they become famous that perhaps they got dishonorably discharged. But actually, no, you, you find pretty quick, uh, you, you find out fairly that most of these guys actually serve honorable discharges. Uh, he gets his honorable discharge in December of 1977. He does get his discharge a bit early because he finds a way that... Um, you can get discharged early, honorably, if you're the uh, sole breadwinner for a uh, for a small child and for a dependent. And he's like, well, I have my daughter. Uh, still, even though he gets discharged and he moves to California, he does stay around Army bases. He does stay in around the Army base uh, in Hawaii before moving to California. And that's where, and he really, even when he moves to California, he's staying around the Army base because he knows that's a fairly reliable um, audience base, a fairly reliable audience base of soldiers, of young black men who are interested in rap music and want to hear rap music played in clubs, especially now that it's becoming more of a national phenomenon. Although Murrow is later going to become famous for his gangster raps, in fact, uh, Ice-T is the one who is 
credited with making gangster rap a genre, uh, along with uh, PSK. Um, basically, six in the morning. It's a fairly early Ice Cube song. Ice T. I'm sorry, Ice T song, not Ice Cube. Ice T, uh, which is called the first gangster rap song. It remains though that the military was very central to not only his exposure to the genre but also his early career. Uh, however, and this is something you find common in a lot of these rap guys, this is not shown in his lyrics. Uh, they do not typically talk about their military service. Uh, Ice-T does not talk about any military service in his early raps. Talks more about gang life. Uh, he does get, you know, to some more crimey stuff. Starts robbing bank, not robbing banks, but actually no, I think he does rob like a bank or two, but more petty theft uh, after his discharge. But still, military is a very big part of his upbringing. Still, Morrow's experience is very typical for several early rappers. Joining the military to find financial stability, either discovering the genre or becoming committed to rapping during their service, and serving until their honorable discharge, yet still staying close to the military base to play live gigs before landing a recording deal. Uh, this is echoing the experience of a lot of early rappers. Not a lot, but a, a decent number of early hip-hop artists. Uh, something like Stanley Burrell, a.k.a. MC Hammer, Nathaniel Hale, Nate Dogg, and really, even though he's a little bit later, um, it's interesting how this next guy's experience really uh, emulates Ice-T's, Trace and Murrow's experience. That'd be Gene Thornton, a.k.a. Malice, or he's now called No Malice because he's like, nah, when he'd be against the violence. Uh, one half of the Clips, one half of the, uh, the Virginia Beach rap group, the Clips. He, even though he's a couple decades after Ice-T, uh, he, he enlists in the early 90s. Once again, because he's a single father for a daughter. And he's like, you know what? I need to provide for my, uh, for my kid. Uh, anyway, all these guys, they serve full terms before their recording careers. All get honorable discharge. And weirdly enough, another group that actually that's even more centered in the military, if you go over one more slide, that's the Two Live Crew. Uh, the Two Live Crew becomes notorious in the late 1980s uh, for their explicit lyrics, their so-called pornography rap. Uh, basically, it was a subject of several obscenity trials, First Amendment cases, they were arrested for being too raunchy. But the original members of the Two Live crew, like the original, original Two Live crew, uh, Luther Campbell, Uncle Luke, Luke Skywalker, whatever you want to call him, he was not an original member of the Two Live crew, he joins later. They were all members of the Air Force. They were all members of the Air Force, and in fact they met at uh, March Air Force Base, which is near Riverside, California, which is in the greater LA area. You can see right there on the left, to the original members of Two Live Crew while they're still in the Air Force. It's actually in Riverside where they first make a name for themselves. And this is actually something you kind of see with some of these rap guys, is once they do uh, change locations, their personas change as well. And that's definitely the case for the Two Live Crew. Um, they really make a name for themselves in Riverside, playing Army-based clubs. Uh, another reason why sometimes you have to BY-own entertainment when Army clubs is a lot of times there is a tension between townies and the military and sometimes the military is not welcome in some of the nightclubs at other parts of town and so you know sometimes you may not be able to hear the acts that go to the bigger clubs because there's anti-military resentment and so you have to bring your own entertainment uh two life crew only relocates to miami after they've actually made a bit of name for themselves uh that's where luther campbell uncle luke luke skywalker you want to call him uh, he's actually a DJ, a radio guy in Miami. He's the one who tells the group, hey, y'all are going to be a really big hit down down in Miami. Why don't you come down? And pretty much that's the only reason they moved to Miami. Now, they definitely become very well affiliated with Miami. 
Uh, but once again, not reflected in their lyrics. None of these guys really talk too much about their military service. Uh, but all of them recognize that the military is a venue that could sustain a strong audience base. Uh, this base, I liken it to an incubator or, or something like a college campus. You know, uh, basically the idea that it serves as an incubator. It's something that like you, you um, compress, you know, you get a lot of people together uh, of similar mindset and who knows what's going to come out of it. Uh, Army bases are often incubators for African-American males of limited means and opportunity because, hey, this is what they feel that is available to them in society. And uh, they make a lot of forays into stuff that isn't necessarily military based. Also, I, I should mention uh, it, it's viewed as a pragmatic thing because when we're talking about the late 70s, particularly in the 80s, the U.S. is not really engaged in a foreign war. I mean, yes, there's various police actions, whatever. But uh, the U.S. Is, and, oh, by the way, I should mention, yes, there are plenty of foreign army bases, you know, Ramstein and, um, you know, Okinawa, whatever. Like, there, there's a lot of foreign army bases. Korea is always a big place where people serve. But there's really a limited threat of being killed. Uh, that, that's uh, definitely a, uh, a change from the Vietnam era. It was like, oh, we're being drafted to be killed. Whereas, hey, we're choosing to enlist in the military. We're not really involved in any foreign wars. You know, it's a very pragmatic mindset. It's not really an impediment for service. Uh, and, and so that's really kind of this sense of pragmatism. You know, enjoy, uh, joining the military, enlisting the military for pragmatic, not necessarily patriotic reasons. We're just like, hey, I have limited opportunities, limited means. I want to make something out of that. Uh, this mindset definitely continues into the 90s, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s. Well, we'll get into that in just a second. But that's definitely the case for one Michael Tyler, a.k.a. Mystical. Uh, he, at the time period, and he graduates co- uh, high school, not college, he graduates high school in 1988, enlists in the Army shortly thereafter. He's a teenager from New Orleans. Uh, he states the reason why he joined the Army is because he wanted to have money for a car. He was like, look, I want a new car. Uh, I don't really have the grades for college. Uh, my mom, she was a single mother. His dad had died when he was much younger. Um, you know, His mom had him and his sister, and so she was trying to raise him the best she could, but she didn't have that much money. And he said he didn't have a lot of you know, connections to really build a solid future. You know, He doesn't, not a lot of economic opportunity, not a lot of job opportunities. And he's like, look, you know, I'm going to join the military. Uh, this, you know, we hadn't been in a foreign war since Vietnam. Country looked kind of stable. The Cold War is starting to wind down a little bit. You know, the Berlin Wall falls the next year. Soviet Union falls in 91. And so he feels this is safe. He feels this is safe. That's that one thing whenever you talk to Mystical. Uh, you know, he, he met, well, in interviews with Mystical, I haven't talked to him yet about this. As though I have his number. Jeez. <laughs> Mystical in interviews about this has said, basically, he's like, you know, I felt safe. You know, we hadn't been in a war for 20 years, so I'm probably not going to get killed. It's actually kind of funny because his sister's like, you know, knowing your luck, watch, as soon as you join the army, we get into a foreign war and you're going to go, you know, die in some foreign country. And uh, that actually, he doesn't die in a foreign country, but shortly after he enlists, uh, the United States starts having increased um, hostilities with Iraq. This ultimately does lead to the first Persian Gulf War. Uh, however, even before the war, Mystical is sent over to Kuwait and Saudi Arabia. Uh, he serves as a combat engineer. If you see that picture, there he is. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, there he is in Saudi Arabia. He is a combat engineer. Uh, he later claims that his military service, he pretty much, as a combat engineer, he said he was mainly a driver. He said he mainly drove Humvees. He says that was his main gig while he was, you know, he was a combat engineer, but mainly he just drove around in Humvees. 
He said it was a suicide draw because he said tr- usually we we're driving through like minefields and you know there people might be shooting at us whatever. However, when pressed, he admitted kind of early on that I didn't see too too much shooting action. Um, you know, he he said yes, I was stationed in Kuwait. Yes, I was stated, uh, stationed in Saudi Arabia during the Persian Gulf War. But he was like, you know, it was a kind of a short war, not a lot of uh, open fire. You know, he said yes, I did see some combat, but it was not a lot of combat. It was not a lot of you know active war zone gunfire. But that's kind of the nature of uh, the Persian Gulf War. Still, he he does get an honorable discharge at the end of his term. He serves two stints actually. And um, he has a fairly honorable service. Uh, the only thing, the only mark that we can find on him is that apparently he did get a short disciplinary sentence. He did serve a little bit of time in the, the brig or whatever. Uh, he does go AWOL for a short time in Kuwait. He was disciplined for it, but nothing severe enough to um, impede him getting an honorable discharge. And in fact, like I said, he, he re-enlisted one time. He did two tours. He, he re-upped after two years, so he did four years total. Now, Tyler, you know, by the time Tyler's in the military, uh, you know, this is the 90s. Rap music is well-established. Uh, plenty of genres out there. Um, he was well familiar with the rap music beforehand. However, he does claim that his cadence in rapping, and if, you, if you've never heard Mystical Rap, which I recommend because he's a fun rapper, um, he has a very barking uh, cadence, very much a... Very quick, rapid fire, but you know, very uh, harsh, biting. He claims he gets this from. Um, also, it's raspy. He claims he's emulating drill sergeants. Uh, he's like basically, he's like you know, my, my rap voice, my rap uh, cadence, whatever you want to call it, my, my style, my flow. Oh, that's probably the best word for it. My flow uh, comes from emulating drill sergeants. He says, you know, I, I sound like I wanted to sound like the drill sergeants. I thought it might make him unique. But uh, he also starts kind of performing while still in the military. He even records a few things while he's still in the army. These are not major. These are not getting any major releases. These are bootlegs at best. Um, it's really not that profitable because he's still in the military. But he says it's vi- he thinks it's viable enough that maybe he could do something about it. And he decides not to re-enlist in like 93 and um, goes back to New Orleans thinking maybe he could get something out of it. He decides to seek his discharge, you know, not re-up after two terms. Now, when he gets to New Orleans, um, he gets discovered at a, quote-unquote, at a Run DMC concert. Basically, he, he, like, he opens for it. He, he does some medial stuff first. But he gets signed by Big Boy Records, which is a... Uh, uh, they were the premier um, New Orleans rap label until, well, you'll see what happened to them. Uh, but he does release his first self-titled album in 1994 uh, under under uh, Big Boy Records. If you go over one slide, you will see the Jive um, re-release. Uh, in 1995, uh, Mystical signs a distribution deal with Jive Records. Sorry, Tyler. Sorry, I, sorry I'll call him the same thing interchangeably. He signs a distribution deal with Jive Records. Um, he's theoretically a separate artist than other people, but it, it gets complicated when you talk about distribution deals in music. Just though, uh, you know, Michael Tyler, Mystical, he gets his own separate distribution deal, even though he's signed with Big Boy Records. Uh, in fact, Jive is going to distribute most of his music, even though No Limit is through a different distributor. I'm not going to get into the weeds with that. It's not too important, but ask me about it in person. I will tell you all everything about it. Uh, when he signs with Jive... Um, they re-released the album, they, uh, the, the, the original self-titled album. They released it as Mind of Mystical. 
Uh, Mind of Mystical becomes a fairly good selling um, album. Actually, um, it sells a it goes gold. It gives it sells over half a million c- copies. So that's it's pretty good for a first album, particularly for somebody who's a, a relative unknown. Uh, New Orleans of this time period is not seen as a national rap player. That's about to change. Uh, but the opening track of this album, both albums, I should say, is Y'all Ain't Ready, kind of an introduction to the, of the listener of, of who Mystical is, how is Mystical legitimate as an MC, and he actually includes a brief mention of his military service, describing himself as, quote, that Saudi Arabian Gulf War veteran 12th, Royal, 12th Ward offspring. And this reference, it's not really like a, a patriotic one. It's not really like, hey, hooray for the military. It's more almost to like iterate his bona fides as being like, I'm a tough individual. I'm a, you know, I've really seen violence. I've seen bad stuff. You know, whenever he, whenever he raps about violence, he wants the listener to know, like, look, I'm not some like, you know, petty gangbanger. I'm not just doing street crime. I've, I've been with real killers. I've been with the U.S. military, you know. I fought in Iraq, which is getting a lot of esteem within the country of like, hey, this was a, this is not like Vietnam where uh, oftentimes soldiers might try to hide their service or you know downplay it, even though he is downplaying it a little bit. The, the, the first Gulf War was seen as a very you know rah-rah, hooray America war. And uh, you know he's kind of right, this is part of his bona fides. He's like, look, I'm not just some like you know little fish talking about like how I robbed somebody once or you know whatever. He's like, look, I, I was a, I was part of the Gulf War. You know, even though I had limited combat experience, I saw some. I was a military veteran. But really, aside from that, he doesn't talk too much about his military service. In fact, the first album has no references to the military aside from that being in his background. Uh, instead, he focuses upon drug use, street violence, promiscuous women, uh, other subjects much more typical for uh, gangster rap. Now, that's not too unusual. I get into that later about why they don't talk too much about it. Um, I'll just go ahead a little bit. I, I would argue it's because rap music is often seen as a wish fulfillment. There's been a lot of studies about that where basically how uh, rap music and rappers are often served as uh, you know, kind of vicarious living, uh, basically living the dream that others can't have. And so um, a military uh, existence might be viewed as kind of mundane, particularly if you're rapping for a bunch of soldiers who, like, you're not anything special if you're talking about your military service, because everybody has military service. So might be a reason why they try to downplay it. As I said, it's a moderate success. Uh, actually, when it's just with Big Boy Records, it, uh, it sells about a couple hundred thousand copies, sells about um, half a million copies, whatever it's re-released on Jive, gets a gold record. Uh, despite this, uh, however, this is probably the last success for Big Boy Records. Uh, a lot of bad things happen to it. Uh, you know, some artists get arrested. One artist gets killed. There's a lot of financial mismanagement. Um, they aren't, they're not quite ready for the big time. The label is no longer a viable option. And he does have a distribution deal with Jive, but um, Jive's not really ready to, willing to take him on as a solo artist. So instead, he signs with No Limit Records. No Limit Records owned by one Percy Master P. Miller. Uh, Miller, he was a New Orleans native. He returned uh, to New Orleans, actually, after living in the Bay Area, and he was returning with a record label in tow. Uh, Despite the fact that No Limit Records becomes synonymous with New Orleans, it actually starts in the Bay Area, in Richmond, California. And in the late 90s, uh, Miller and his crew of No Limit soldiers would be at the forefront of rap music and probably the most prominent example of military imagery in the genre. So let's talk about Percy Miller. Let's talk about Master P., uh, he was born in the Cal P Projects, the CP3, which is kind of ironic that uh, Chris Paul gets the nickname CP3, even though it's already the Cal P Projects of New Orleans. Uh, he's born in 1970. He's the first of five children. Uh, Miller has a kind of an interesting background. It, it is 
poorer, but it's he has a fairly stable, you know, he's not really into a life of crime or anything. He was a varsity athlete throughout high school. Uh, he actually attends the University of Houston on a basketball scholarship. In fact, he's about the same age as Miss Golkin because they both um, they both graduate high school in 1988. Uh, he does get a basketball scholarship to the University of Houston. If you're not familiar with the University of Houston in the 80s, so it's actually a pretty big basketball school. However, he does drop out after his freshman year because he has a knee injury. And upon returning to New Orleans, he does do a little bit of that um, Southern University of New Orleans studies business administration. But a little bit after that, though, he um, he does move to Richmond, California with his wife. He moves to Richmond, California with his wife, Sonia, uh, basically to escape the crime. His brother was killed in New Orleans. He was like, you know what? I need to get out of here. This is not safe. This is unsavory. And actually, he uses $10,000 that he gets from a uh, malpractice suit. Uh, basically, his grandfather had died. There was a wrongful death malpractice suit about his grandfather. And basically, he uses it to own a, open up a record store, which he calls the No Limit Record Store in Richmond, California, which is in the Bay Area, a little north of Oakland, which specializes in hip-hop records. Now, in 1990, within a year of opening the No Limit Record Store, uh, he installs a recording studio in the back of the store and finds his own label, which he also calls No Limit Records. And the rationale he does is simple. He learns fairly early on that by selling quote-unquote underground or indie rap records, it's way more profitable for him. He's like, look, if I'm, if I'm making this record, if I'm selling this record you know, from a local artist, I'm actually making more money off of it because I'm not you know, giving money to the distributor or to the record label. You know, it's going into fewer pockets. So although these albums do have uh, not that great sales and they have a much smaller audience base, they're also way cheaper to produce and actually could return a return make a better return on investment. And so, and remember, since uh, Miller owns both the recording space and the retail space, he, he and the record label, he could theoretically double his profits. And he actually even saves even more on artists by like leaning upon himself and also his family members to provide the content. Now, I, I should mention this about Master P, Percy Miller. And I don't think I'm offending anybody when I say this. Uh, he's not a great lyricist, nor is he a really great producer. Uh, he is adequate at best at both. Um, still, it's adequate enough to record an album, which was called Getaway Clean. You can see it right there. Uh, also featuring The Real Untouchables. Uh, the Real Untouchables, to save on money, they're his brothers. Um his brothers Corey and Vashon Miller, a.k.a. C-Murder and Silk the Shocker, they call themselves True, uh, T-R-U, the real untouchables. And as either a piece of artistic work or technical achievement, the album is lacking. Uh, I, I cannot recommend listening to this one. It's, it's rough, y'all. It's rough. Uh, the, the, it's not that great of a, of a record. I mean, even that's always a criticism of, of uh, No Limit. You know, it's, it's always quantity over quality. Uh, this one does not have much quality. It's it's very much an early. You can tell it's you know done for. I want to say Masterpiece's first couple albums were less than a thousand dollars to make, and you you can tell by listening to it. But it's still profitable enough. You know, he he recorded this album for like a thousand bucks. I actually his first album wasn't even a thousand dollars. It was like a hundred bucks, and he's actually making decent return on it. Yeah, he's selling just to No Limit Record Store in California, but he's making a lot more money off of it. And so he records another album in 1992, Mama's Bad Boy, also featuring his brothers. 
And uh, he also partners with another Oakland-based record store to get more distribution, a record label called Intimate Records, basically to get more distribution in the Bay Area. He does find more success in 1994 with The Ghetto Is Trying to Kill Me, which sells over 100,000 copies, almost exclusively within the Bay Area. And this is the one that only costs $1,000 to produce. Um, that's really good return on investment. If you, Even if you're selling it for only $10 an album, which is about right, um, and it only costs $1,000 to produce, and you pretty much own most of the distribution, you're getting most of the money off of it, Miller easily made a million dollars off of that. Easily made a million dollars. Um, and then in 1995, he made Nine Ways to Die, which cost a bit more than $1,000 to make, uh, but also doubled the uh, record sales of The Ghetto Is Trying to Kill Me. It was actually the first No Limit album to break the Millboard charts. Barely, you know, in the ni- 90s. But still, for a really local guy who's just selling within the Bay Area, the fact that he's able to chart on Billboard is actually pretty impressive, and he's making quite a bit of money off of it. Now, Miller's success had not gone unnoticed by the larger record labels, and he actually returns to New Orleans in 1995. He returns to New Orleans in 1995, but when he returns to New Orleans in 1995, um, he says he wants to do it to be closer to some family, you know, um, you know, Cost of living is cheaper. It might have an untapped potential for other artists. Uh, the Bay Area is a bit saturated with rappers because it is California. He's already in negotiation with Priority Records for a national distribution deal. Remember, before this time, Miller is just selling in uh, the Bay Area. However, now that he's moving to New Orleans, he wants to be sure that his new records will be able to be sold in the Bay Area, and that's why he wants to partner with uh, Priority. Plus, he just barely charted on Billboard, so maybe there could be more national distribution, possibly international distribution. And this is where Miller gets probably the reason he becomes super wealthy. Um, Priority wants to get into the rap market, but they, they, they're, you know, it's, it's a bit of a risk. And so they, they're like, look, we're, not, we're just going to do distribution. You can take on most of the risk of you know, recording it, signing the artist, selling it, that sort of thing. You can just be distribution. And so basically Miller is really betting on himself here. He's really saying, look, I can generate a lot of success despite barely getting radio play, no marketing. Um, he gets a very advantageous distribution deal with Priority in 1996 if you want to know why Masterpiece still has well over $100 million in money, despite not really having a hit record in quite a while, and actually even his height, barely charting on Billboard, uh, it's because of this distribution deal. Mainly because Priority doesn't think that this is going to be that big of an artist for them, and that Miller is willing to take on so much of the expense himself. Um, they basically, the deal is Priority is going to press the records, which means you know physically manufacture them, and then distribute them, you know, send them across the country, uh, they're going to do that for 15 cents on the dollar. Now, here's the thing. That's not the greatest deal right this second, except the fact that there's nobody else in this deal. Master P, sorry, Percy Miller, is keeping the rights to the master recordings, which is huge, keeping the rights to the masters. That's, that's a huge deal in any musical genre. If you ever want to get involved in music, uh, own your own masters. Well... A couple of years ago, because now things are uh, <laughs> a bit different in terms of digital distribution. So Master P. Miller is getting 85 cents on the dollar. This is bonkers. No other artist came close to this. Like, any artist you could think of was not getting anywhere close to 85 points. That is insanity. 
Like, even somebody like Madonna, who in this time period would probably have, like, probably some of the biggest name recognition in terms of artists. I think at her best, she was getting maybe, like, 10 or 11%. The fact that Master P, who is getting, you know, way less album sales, is making way more money, significantly more money. So the first album that Miller releases under this new partnership is 1996's Ice Cream Man, which sells a fairly impressive 32,000 copies in its first week. Uh, it was dwarfed by next year's Ghetto D, which sold in a week about eight times the amount of its predecessor. And then he follows this triumph by releasing more albums, so as brothers, as other New Orleans-based rappers, such as Mystical, Tyler, who signs with their limit following Miller's Return to the City. And, and just to uh, give you an example, in 1998... No Limit sold 26 million records, which is more than any other rap label, and pretty close any other record label, period, regardless of genre. 26 million records. If you want to do the math, let's do the math right now. I'm pulling out Mr. Calculator. So, okay, uh, all right, 85% of 26 is 22.5. So basically for 10 albums, sorry, for, if you sell it at $10 an album, which is about how much No Limit sold for, uh, Master P made about $220 million in 1998, which is bonkers just on rap music. And don't get me wrong, he has a lot of other business ventures. So what's interesting is when he comes to New Orleans, he really goes whole hog on this No Limit Soldiers thing. If you go over one side, you will see Master P, the No Limit Soldiers, and the famous No Limit uh, tank emblem. But despite this later, like, really strong evidence of soldiers, the first albums of Master P have no, lim- have no limit. Yeah, they have no limit, because they are no limit. No, no, no. They have no mention of the concept. Uh, Master P's first four albums, the one he does whenever he's in California, there's no mention of soldiers or the military or anything. Um, his first albums refer to him and his compadres as the No Limit Mafia. And, you know, using Mafia... Um, Imagery is not unusual in rap music in this time period. Mafioso rap is very much a common trope by this time. Um, and that's pretty much when he's in the Bay Area. It's only after he goes back to New Orleans uh, in Ice Cream Man, actually in the first track of Ice Cream Man, uh, he really, really, really starts playing down the soldier thing. Actually, in the first track, the first introduction of the album, he's asked, so what do you call yourself? And he responds, Mr. Ice Cream Man, I'm a No Limit Soldier. And in the same track, he starts talking about that the rap music is warfare. You know, he's like, look, Tupac has died. <clears throat> you know, this industry, you got to be a soldier about it. you got to be stronger about it. But because me and my crew were so strong, we're unable to stop, we deserve the moniker of soldiers. Now, I bet you're wondering, where does Master P get the soldier idea from? How does he go from not mentioning soldiers to he only mentions soldiers? Well... Um, there's no good answer for this, sadly. There's no good answer. The The best I can give, and my, I guess my personal theory, is um, he does not do this on his own. Apparently, he doesn't really have any thought of it until he gets back to New Orleans. Where there's another rapper, uh, James Trapp, a.k.a. Soldier Slim. Now, Soldier Slim is the first one to really, really push the soldier motif. Um, he does do some independent records of middling success, uh, pretty much just around New Orleans or independent. He does sign with No Limit for a while in 1998, then he goes to jail. Uh, he later does his big hit with Juvenile Slow Motion, and then he dies. 
But Soldier Slim is the one who really pushes a soldier motif. It gets some popularity. More than likely, when Miller, you know, who was familiar with New Orleans because he still had family there and was aware of what was going on in rap music in New Orleans, when he sees just how popular Soldier Slim is getting, seeing that the soldier motif is popular, he probably took that as like, hey, this is a bit of a uh, obtainable uh, image. Uh, you also have this like with Run DMC, as opposed to earlier rappers, uh, most early rappers. We're talking like pre-Run DMC rappers. They're like disco types wearing leather outfits with a lot of zippers, like bright yellow. Um, Run DMC, that's the Adidas jumpsuit. It's a more obtainable street style, uh, really influenced by Jam Master J, but Russell Simmons pretty much forced uh, the rest of the group to go into it. Pretty much what Master P does. It's like, all right, cool. Uh, this seems to work for Soldier Slim. Um, I'm not saying he copies Soldier Slim, but he's greatly influenced. But Master P is the one who really pushes a soldier motif, and boy, howdy does he push it. Because in time, this whole soldier image comes to dominate all representations of Miller, uh, Master P, No Limit Records, No Limit Artist. Uh, the tank becomes the company's logo. Before they move back to New Orleans, the tank is nowhere in the logo. Now that is the logo. Um, you know the, the chains that Master P and his artists wear, the No Limit chain. It's got the tank, it's got the guy with the gun. Miller starts dressing extensively in camouflage. Uh, a lot of the other rappers start doing this as well, this very strong soldier motif. Uh, this is really clear on uh, Mystical's first album, uh, 1997's Unpredictable. If you go down one slide, you will see a picture of it. In which basically, uh, Master P introduces Mystical in the opening track as, quote, one of the hardest lieutenants on the tank. And then basically Master P starts talking about the streets as warfare. We're all born to be soldiers, see these evil thoughts. They're scarred into our mother effing souls from these wars, the streets, the ghetto, the hood. And then basically, Mystical really starts talking about his military service. He really starts using more army imagery, really starts using more soldier imagery in his songs. Uh, for instance, in his first album, barely mentions his military imagery. Yes, he says, like, look, I'm bona fide. I was in the Gulf War, but that's it. Um, the track Born to Be a Soldier, which was on um, the first album of Unpredictable, it's pretty bombastic in its use of military imagery. Uh, Tyler raps, you don't want to rest in this parade, no limit soldiers, throwing grenades, strictly heavy artillery, calm and gunning, I got your troops running from incoming. Okay, that is me trying to talk as mystical. Mystical's way better. Um, listen to it if you want. Likewise, uh, Tyler does allude to his time in the Persian Gulf by saying, no limit soldiers, we don't have time for no LBEs, no MREs, but we kill our enemies and drive Humvees. So he's alluding to the fact that he was a driver for a while. You have the soldier motif. It's a very, uh, you know, obtainable, uh, understandable motif, not just for those who have military service, but, you know, those who might be familiar with the military imagery. Uh, this is also seen in Masterpiece's biggest hit, uh, Make Him Say Uh, in 1997 from Ghetto D. This is by far Masterpiece's biggest hit. It's the song most synonymous with the label. Um, the song and the video really play the soldier idea. Um, he calls himself the commander of the mother effing tank. Y'all after big things, we after big bank, third fort hustlers, soldiers in combat, convicts and dealers, killers with true tats. And then he starts alluding to military police, saluting, standing at ease throughout the rest of his verse. Um, there's a million other people on this uh, on this song, including Mystical. Uh, however, you know, Masterpiece is the first one. He's basically saying, I'm the commander. I'm the one in charge. You know, I, you know everybody takes their orders from me. The music video has uh, Miller entering into a basketball game. 
uh, in a gold-plated tank. You can see the gold-encrusted tank, the gold-plated tank. Uh, he is wearing a no-limit jersey in this one. Uh, surprisingly, this does not have a lot of camouflage motifs. It's probably unique in that it doesn't really have a lot of camouflage motif. But still, it, it is impossible to watch a music video and listen to the music, listen to the song, without getting um, no-limit soldiers promoted heavily in the lyrics. But what is interesting is that despite No Limit is being comprised of soldiers and it's being very, very prominent in the lyrics, it is noteworthy that they don't really have them at war with anybody. Um, there's no foreign adversary. I, I like to uh, point out that in the Make Em Say Um music video, even though it's at a basketball game, there's no opposing team. Everybody's in No Limit jerseys. There's no um, other, you know, they, they don't have a, a rival team. It's just uh, a giant crowd came to watch No Limit soldiers sing around a basketball goal. I mean, yes, I know it's a rap music video and it's a lot of it is wish fulfillment, but still. Um, if, if there is a conflict, it, it's domestic, perhaps with the violent nature of the ghetto. This goes into a much larger um, element of rap studies where you talk about the nature of the ghetto, uh, the idea that, you know, for a lot of rappers, this is something where, where it's from, they're also trying to escape. It's home, but it's also a foreign entity that's trying to get after them. Uh, also, while No Limit soldiers might have the trapping of soldiers, they swear allegiance to No Limit. Uh, they are not swearing allegiance to the United States military. There's no uh, patriotic elements of their soldier motif. This is different than most other genres that when they talk about soldiers, for instance, country music, they really play up the patriotism element. Uh Miller was not really expecting his audience to have an affinity towards military service, but he really was hoping that utilization of military tropes and soldier tropes would denote strength and masculinity uh, of his artist. And it's also indicative of the time period where the U.S. is not really engaged in a lot of foreign warfare. And, you know, being a soldier was seen as almost like as a job, not really a patriotic calling for a lot of African-American men. Uh, by the same token, uh, Mystical doesn't really talk too much about his military service. Um, well, he, he does use a lot of military imagery, but not to talk about actual service, uh, rather about his toughness. Uh, for instance, his second album with No Limit, 1998's Ghetto Fabulous, opens with the song Round Out the Tank. Uh, listen to it. It's, a, it's an interesting one. Uh, Round Out the Tank is probably Mystical's most direct in terms of rapping about the armed forces uh, so far, and he uses extensive military terminology throughout, but it's a very broad one. Sorry, it's not a broad one. It's actually very specific. Uh, he uses very specific military imagery, as opposed to Master P, who used more broad one. But for instance, on Round Out the Tank, he says, I'm a 40-day, 40-night field problem. I'm your smart book when the live exercise begins. And when we get it dark, I'm noise and line discipline. 12 Bravo when you run out the foxhole. Okay, half those terms he used are, like, unknown to people outside the military. But for those who had been in the Army within the past 10, 15 years, they would recognize most of those terms and phrases as, oh, yeah, that's military stuff. Uh, you know, uh, the smart book, that's like the, the book they give you during military exercise, basically tell you what to expect. Noise and night discipline, basically like, you know, keep things quiet in the foxhole. Uh, 40 day, 40 night field problem. That's like 40, you know, the, the day problems. That's All of these are very extensive military images. And what's interesting is that he's using military terms and concepts that would be familiar for those who are either in the army or were recent veterans but otherwise be unknown to the general public. 
Like, he is using a lot of jargon, but he's really using it to basically say he's a tough individual. I'm a legitimate tough individual. You can't say that my military service was fake. Let me use all this jargon that only military guys would get. But he's not really using that to expound upon life as a veteran, not expounding upon like any sense of patriotism, or what life is actually like as a soldier. It's just more of the idea that, look, I'm this strong individual. I'm tapping into like what veterans might have remembered about their military service, but not as like, hey, here's what it was like, or you know, here's some of the insignificant things, or here's some of the insecurities I'm dealing with. It's more just like, hey, I'm a tough guy. I actually served in the Army. Now, actually... Tyler is going to leave No Limit. Miskel leaves No Limit after the release of Ghetto Fabulous, and he remains solely with Jive. Uh, Jive is the label he had signed with earlier for his distribution. Jive is starting to expand in rap music, and so basically uh, he gets out of No Limit. It allows basically Miskel to work with more producers, have more creative control over his work, and also, as I mentioned, we with producers outside of No Limit. No Limit was very strict about who you could work as producers. Uh, if you're unfamiliar in rap music... Um, Producers are a very, very big deal. Uh, they pretty much create the beats. Uh, I, I should mention, though, that Tyler leaving No Limit was amicable. Like, Miller has no hard feelings for it. Um, you know, Miller had been able to use Tyler's military service to add credentials to his depictions of No Limit soldiers. And Tyler was able to use Miller's marketing ability to raise his personal profile and marketability considerably. So his first album after leaving No Limit in 2000 was Let's Get Ready, this actually would be Mystical's biggest, uh, sorry, Tyler's biggest commercial hit. Debuts at number one on the Billboard chart, goes double platinum, sells two million copies. And although he works with many producers on this album, uh, the ones that he does with the Neptunes, who are Virginia Beach-based, uh, Pharrell Williams and Chad Hugo, uh, they're probably the biggest hits on the album, uh, Shake Your Ass and Danger. Now, the Neptunes are interesting because both of whom have military connections, um, their upbringing is in Virginia Beach, uh, for Virginia Beach, uh, which is a major, major, major Navy station. Uh, the Norfolk base is right there. It's a major Navy station. Uh, Chad Hugo is a military brat. His, his dad was in the Navy. Uh, likewise for Rel, he has a family history extensively of people being in the Navy. Uh, he was never in the Navy though. So even though neither of these guys were part of the military, they're very much familiar with the military. And I should mention that um, most of Miskel's music and, and definitely the Neptune's collaborations on um, Let's Get Ready don't really contain a military album element. That is not the case with Danger. Uh, Danger is the second um, single to come from Let's Get Ready. Not as big of a head of shake ass, but it's still a pretty decent sized hit for Mystical. Uh, I want to say it's definitely in the top 20, if not top 10 of the Billboard singles. Uh, really in its music video. The music video and the, the imagery of Danger, how it was promoted, how Mystical did live performance of, of the song, uh, very much iterates a military element. Very much goes with this. The lyrics of Danger itself, it's basically Mystical saying, I'm a tough guy, I'm not one to be um, you know, trifled with, to do so would put you into danger. Um, the, he doesn't state in the lyrics, it's because of his military service. The music video, much more direct. Uh, the music video, it opens with Tyler. He's a paratrooper. Uh, that is something that's very evident in this song, its promotion, in the imagery of live performances. Uh, Mystical is a paratrooper. He's wearing his camouflage do-rag. He's, you know, he's not in a military uniform. Uh, I should iterate that. But he's definitely a military paratrooper of some forward, not necessarily an Army, U.S. Army uh, paratrooper. 
The music video uh, starts where basically he awakens. He's in the desert. There's been a plane crash. Uh, his parachute is behind him. Uh, he kind of wakes up. You know, he, he kind of, um, you know, see, you see the plane wreckage smoking in the background. He wanders in vain for a while to relocate his fellow soldiers and, and the rest of his squad. And then he collapses on a sand dune. He is in a, a unknown desert environment, uh, more than likely alluding to Iraq or uh, since the Gulf War service. This is pre-9-11, so not Afghanistan, but more than likely Iraq. The idea of a soldier being a, um, you know, a, a foreign soldier serving in a desert is kind of a common trope at this time. Uh, and then, you know, once he collapses on the sand dune, that's when the bulk of the music video begins, uh, which basically is him kind of awaking. He, uh, he sees, you know, a, a, you know, a woman on a motorcycle and very scantily clad, you know, in revealing clothing. Uh, she brings him to a cantina where there are more video vixens. He is, uh, you know, being tempted by these video vixens. It takes on a very, um, dreamlike quantity, quality, and the dream element really is really pushed when at the very end, he wakes up, he's back in the desert, it's all been a fantasy, and now he's scouring the landscape for the rest of his unit. And this is probably his most overt commentary towards his military servant. He's not showing the life of the soldier be dangerous or glamorous. You know, the, the glamorous uh, part of it is him going to this cantina. You know, going to a cantina, they're big dudes, which granted don't really aren't too threatening to him, but there are a lot of beautiful women who are, um, you know, not wearing a lot of clothing. They're, uh, you know, trying to seduce Mystical. He's trying to be kind of wary of them, so what? That's kind of glamorous, a little bit dangerous with some of these women. However, once he wakes up, he's back to the mundane reality. You know, military service, he views it kind of as a mundane reality of one that must be endured. Now, this military, this is not just in the music video. Uh, live performances of danger also really push this paratrooper military imagery strong. Um, if you watch live performances of them, I, there's one I really want to highlight. Uh, the Soul Train Awards. He does the Soul Train Awards in 2000. Um, he comes out, he comes out on a ladder. Basically, it's a ladder underneath a helicopter. It's not a real helicopter because it's on a stage. But you hear the helicopter noise. And basically, he's ho holding on to this uh, ladder. Ironically, he's not even strapped on the ladder. He's just hanging on to it, which is a huge, wow, they did that uh, so soon after the Owen Hart death. Uh, Owen Hart was a pro wrestler who died after a similar stunt. Granted, Mystical is not as high off the ground as, um, as Owen Hart was. But still, the idea that he's a good you know, 10, 15 feet off the ground, he's not tethered to anything, that's something you would not see nowadays uh, when you're talking about this sort of thing. So in the performance, Mystical, you know, he, he's, he's the paratrooper once again, wearing the paratrooper pants. Um, you know, theoretically, he's come down from, from, the, from the helicopter. You know, the, everybody, all the dancers, male and female, are, are in um, kind of desert camo, uh, which is a bit more realistic than your traditional hunter's camo, which, was most, which is what Master P typically wore, was hunter's camo, but then he would wear, uh, you know, other urban warfare camo. Mystical is in desert camo, kind of iterating the desert motif. Re the Soul Train Awards one, the one I highlighted that out, is because midway through the performance, um, Mystical starts doing the Thriller dance. I, I, I swear to God, I don't know why. It's really weird, but Mystical starts doing Thriller. They start playing the Thriller song for a little while, and Mystical dances for it before going back to the third verse of Danger, which... Yeah, that's the other thing. Uh, the, the recorded version of Danger has two verses, 
but most of the rec- the music video and most of the live performances have a third verse, which, you know, it's just differences between the two. So the uh, live performance skips a second verse in favor of a thriller breakdown, which kind of iterates this, like, oh, this fanciful element of it, like, you know, this is not the... You know, this is it's it's scarier in terms of um, and more feel for in terms of like what we can imagine rather than actual military service. Now let's go back to what old Master P is up to. Well, he's not old; he's in his thirties. He's probably younger than I am, which makes me sad. But following the departure of Tyler and the other rappers signed to No Limit, uh, most notably uh, Snoop Dogg, uh, Calvin Brodus, Snoop Doggy Dog, Snoop Dogg, he was signed to No Limit for a while. He also leaves on fairly amicable terms. Uh, Miller actually changes his marketing approach. Uh, whereas his earlier stuff is tier is you know kind of towards a more um, traditional hip hop audience, uh, Miller post two thousand is way more interested in courting mainstream markets. Uh, this is probably because he does renegotiate his contract with um, with Priority. Basically, in two thousand one, the the priority the priority deal is done. He has to renegotiate with another record label, ultimately gets it with uh, Capitol Records, which was an EMI subsidiary. Um, Basically, Priority merged... Well, EMI, which was the parent company of Priority, merged it with Capitol Records. Make a long story short, basically Master P has to find another record deal. Uh, It's with Universal Motown. It's not not quite as... um, favorable towards Miller. By this time, Filler is a much more proven commodity. And so basically for Miller to get his money, he's going to have to sell a lot more records. And now he's going much more mainstream. And you can see this early on with my baby uh, in 2001. Uh, that's, that's masterpiece son, Romeo, Romeo Miller, AKA little Romeo. Romeo Miller becomes the youngest artist to ever have a top five billboard hit. Uh, with the song My Baby, which extensively, like, hardcore samples um, J- the Jackson 5's I Want You Back. Uh, Little Romeo is 11 years old, whenever this comes out, and he is a rapping about considerably softer subject matter than his father. Um, he raps about, like, his prowess at basketball, or how he makes A's and B's in school, uh, you know, and how prepubescent girls chase after him all the time. In fact, the music video is nothing but prepubescent girls chasing after Little Romeo, running through the mall and stuff. Uh, so there are military elements present in uh, in Little Romeo. Little Romeo is often shown in camouflage. Uh, the music video, basically at the end of it, um, Little Romeo is saved by his father in a helicopter. It's not a military helicopter, but the idea being that Master P has access to helicopters because he's rich, and then he says, uh, he's wearing a do-rag. There's some camouflage elements. Uh, my baby... You know, you may not think of it as a No Limit record, like make him say, uh, but this is by far uh, Masterpiece's biggest commercial hit, period. Um, outside of, you know, the rap stuff, I mean, you could argue that Little Romeo is rap, but this is bubblegum rap. Um, way more exposure in the pop markets. And, and Miller seeks to repeat his success by having a lot more acts that are targeted towards the mainstream. A lot more white teen acts, such as Sarah Lynn. Uh, Sarah Lynn was a blonde hair, blue eyed Britney Spears knockoff who tries really hard to be Britney Spears and the incredibly embarrassing Six Piece. Uh, Six Piece was a boy band. They were the no limit boy band. They were six white guys called Six Piece. 
and they were No Limits Boy Band. I cannot recommend you listening to any of it, because I have, and it's awful. Now, the terrorist attacks of 9-11 caused a wellspring of pro-American patriotism throughout popular culture, and rap music was no, success, uh, was no exception. For instance, if you go for one, uh, North Carolina-based rapper Moses Barrett III, a.k.a. P.D. Pablo, re-recorded his first hit single, Raise Up, to the Raise Up USA remix, in which he commanded listeners to take your, sorry, take your flag, stick it in the air, spin it like a helicopter, before rapping the names of army bases and commenting, even got me dressed in army fatigues, how you love that. And he also warns Osama bin Laden that Barrett and his family are looking for him. Um, if you can find, there are no good music video versions of it, I don't think he ever made a music video of it, but it's not too hard to find on YouTube, the Raise Up USA remix. There's a lot of these that happen after um, 9-11, but I think this one's probably the most notable because it's kind of jarring to listen to just how straight, patriotic, jingoistic it is. I, I should also agree, a lot of New York-based rappers cited the loss of the World Trade Center in their rhymes, uh, but they also iterated the strength of the city and the country as a whole. Uh, this is seen by Sean P. Diddy Combs, Puff Daddy, whatever you want to call him at the time he was Diddy. Uh, he does have a music video for Welcome to Atlanta, but it's the Coast to Coast remix. Uh, Coast to Coast Remix. Uh, Welcome to Atlanta was originally done by Ludacris and Jermaine Dupri. However, they did a Coast to Coast version where basically they talk about multiple cities, New York, um, Los Angeles, St. Louis, and Atlanta. And P. Diddy is the one representing for New York. Uh, after he basically saying how great the city is, he exclaims, New York, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. And we still here, and we build in four more new towers. Mother Effers. That's, that's one of my favorite mother effers in music, just because it's hilarious sounding. So there's another emblematic of it. Uh, for his part, Miller, uh, the most patriotic thing that Miller does is he gets his boy band six-piece to record the song Once Upon a Time, which, this is a song I cannot iterate you watch. I think the music video is on YouTube, and it has like eight views. I, I don't want there to be nine or ten. I've watched it a few times. It's, it's, ugh, it's... <laughs> the lyrics are typical boy band fodder regarding a lost love, but the music video that's all the members dressed as New York firefighters in front of a giant American flag. And it's like, they're firefighters who lost their girlfriends. It's very much within the patriotic fervor that swept across the United States following the attacks of 9-11 and the early invasion of Afghanistan. Now, it's really interesting. Despite the increased prevalence of patriotic... <coughs> Excuse me. Patriotic and even jingoistic uh, imagery in hip-hop, rappers with military service still keep their references to a minimum. Uh, it, it's interesting because Mystical, he puts out the album... Sorry, Michael Tyler, Mystical. In 2001, he puts out uh, Tarantula, which parts of which were actually recorded after 9-11, and he does reference the sense of fear throughout the country, um, as well as stuff like the anthrax attacks. This is actually demonstrated in the music video for uh, "Bouncing Back Against the Sorry Bouncing Back Bumping Me Against the Wall." It's another collaboration with the Neptunes. Uh, there's a part where he basically raps, "Done started some trouble and you ain't been down since because you stuck inside watching CNN. Just take the precautions, so your life would better be. Tell my friends, call me. I ain't accepting no letters." And the music video is also showing you know the anthrax scare on the newspapers and mystical now in a. Um, mental facility basically saying like look the world's too crazy I can't get out there and I should mention with the, with the invasion of Afghanistan you know already underway looming possibility of a second Iraq war 
Tyler does not mention the fact that he's a Gulf War veteran in Tarantula. And, and despite that being a typical boast, I mean, you know, yeah, he may not go too in-depth about his military service, except it was something like round out the tank, but he's kind of iterating that, no, the, 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 the bravado of the former, quote, hardest lieutenant on the tank, it's gone. He's now talking about anxiety and uncertainty of life following the terrorist attacks. As wars of the uh, Af- Afghanistan and Iraq became uh, increasingly unpopular and they went on, uh, rappers began to <coughs> utilize military imagery less and less. Even Miller, even Miller, he starts downplaying self-descriptions of being a soldier in his raps and his following persona. That's also when he does the uh, distribution deal. He has to renegotiate it. Uh, so basically, his public profile, he's going more mainstream, more bubblegum pop, but thinks of things like... Uh, no, um, Romeo success. He does try to do the the new no limit quote unquote with other New Orleans rappers and Louisiana based rappers. Doesn't go too hot. Um, still he does he is prominent. You know throughout the mid two thousands. You know with this new distribution deal, he's not the old no limit where he's getting eighty five cents of the dollar. He's getting much less. Uh, but still he's kind of decreasing the number of military imagery. Uh, for instance, both Millers were on the show um, Romeo, which was on Nickelodeon, ran from 2003 to uh, 2006, where the father and son duo played fictionalized versions of themselves. And though, even though Miller's character, he's a, he's a rap producer, uh, Ro- uh, not Romeo Miller, he's just a kid, but Master P, Percy Miller, his character on the Romeo show is a rap producer, uh, he's much more in line with the dopey dad stereotype, uh, you know, kind of seen in any other sitcom uh, you know, kind of showing that, oh, you know, oh, Romeo's getting in trouble. What am I going to do? Uh, this characterization is also going to occur in the film Uncle P, in which Miller plays a very wealthy, still goofy, uncle forced to raise his sister's children. And throughout the 2000s, Miller would sporadically release records. None of them were sell anywhere close to the heights of the old No Limit. Uh, but the something sells do not bother Miller, which he's still maintaining a net worth of over $100 billion to this day. He's doing well. So for men of the hip-hop generation, for African-American men of the hip-hop generation, enlistment in the military was done primarily for financial reasons, not for patriotism. This was not the same resentment of the U.S. Army prevalent during the Vietnam War, when you know, black men lamented being sent in disproportionately high numbers due to the draft, and Muhammad Ali famously refusing to honor his draft summing, citing no Viet Cong ever called me the N-word. Instead, the armed forces were seen as a steady, albeit mundane, manner in which to gain stability, uh, particularly among black men with children. It is only natural that once exposed to rap music through Barrick's life, many GIs would fancy themselves MCs, and the nightclubs and other venues surrounding the base would provide a steady audience base. These rapping soldiers and veterans, I would argue, didn't use too much military imagery in their rhymes because rap was often popular as wish fulfillment and an escape from everyday life. And the idea of a life of a soldier for most of these early rappers in the military, it's, it is everyday life. You know, being a soldier was not something that's fanciful. So, for instance, whenever Miskel raps, he does not mention his service as evidence of his credit. He mentions his service as evidence of his credentials, but doesn't really hark upon it. Instead, of drawing upon time, more time on his modern existence. He's not really ashamed of it, but he does not dwell upon it. Even nowadays, when you uh, hear Miskel do um, interviews, and there are interviews where he does actually finally talk in decent amount about his army service, he's like, "Yeah, you know, it was a job. I, you know, I got shot at a couple times when I was driving the Humvee." He's not really. Hooray America, hooray Army, as opposed to like somebody in country music might be, or any other genre. 
you know, enlisting in the military was the venue through which Miskell sought stability and later gave him credibility as a real killer, but the specifics of which were not really worth harking upon. Likewise, it was Master P, Percy Miller, who had no actual military service, who pushed the narrative by utilizing soldier imagery and actually finds a receptive audience. Now, Miller would say he uses a soldier imagery because he's like, oh, I'm here to honor my family members and other people who did serve in the military. That might be part of it, but I think part of it is just it's a maintainable, obtainable uh, image. Miller built a multi-million dollar media empire through self-promoting his depiction of the near-limit soldier, which was a regulated, strong, and armed individual. Now, what's unique is some of the studies of this talk about how it links with the Black Panther Party and other, you know, black militancy images. I don't buy that. Um, I, I say that, you know, this is kind of a different depiction of black militarism. This is not like a Black Panther Party. Because Miller soldiers, they're not really antagonistic towards mainstream society. Uh, they're not really willing to fight anybody. You, you rarely, if ever, see Miller's No Limit soldiers um, armed. You know, yeah, they might allude to it, but you don't see a lot of images of them holding guns, as opposed to something like the Black Panther Party, where they're extensively holding guns. Instead, his soldiers were a lifestyle choice of unchallengeable strength and masculinity, yet free from the actual expectations of engaging in combat and the mundane actual existence of being a soldier. Now, this depiction was dependent upon the time of a post-Cold War, pre-9-11 existence, where threats of a foreign war were minimal. And during a time of no warfare, Miller and his ill-caped military imagery prominent. Uh, another evidence uh, example of this is around, I think it's around 2000, Master P starts uh, appearing in WCW Wrestling. The No Limit Soldiers become a wrestling stable, and their enemies, the people they fight against, uh, the, the bad guy wrestlers, are a group called the West Texas Outlaws, who put out you know, a bad guy wrestler song called Rap is Crap, and ironically, the audience likes rap as crap better, and they become the good guys because the audience likes them a lot more. But that's the public, uh, that's the, uh, that's the pro wrestling audience. But I'd say once 9-11 occurred, and also Miller has to, you know, maintain higher record sales, uh, Miller, and also there's more of a threat of dying in a foreign war, and also there's issues about should the U.S. be spending this much money on resources in a foreign war, wherever African Americans in the ghetto are not doing that great, uh, Miller downplays the soldier motif in his work. And although this is an undercurrent in hip-hop, the relationship between the genre and the military demonstrates a considerable promise and it has risen recurrently throughout its history. And as I've said, I think it has a further example for it. So uh, if you listen to all this, thank you. I appreciate it. Let me know how you feel about it. And um, am I going to turn this into a bigger project? Yeah, I never know. You might. So anyway, this is Stuart Tully for Tully's Take on History, doing some rippity-rap. <laughs>